Amen. Thank you, brother. It is good to be back with you again in Colossians. We're going to hover here for a little while, if you will. But let's, let's begin seeking the Lord's help and counsel and the power of His Spirit to reveal to us today what He wants to say and what He wants to do and what He is doing in our lives. Gracious Father, thank You again, Lord. Thank You. Praise You for the work that You alone have begun in the hearts of Your redeemed. Father, help us today to see, to, to treasure, to have great value and esteem and violence toward this renewal that you are continuing to do in us. Lord, we confess our weakness. We confess openly, honestly, our dependency and our utter need. Father, for you know the sin that we battle against on a daily basis. So, Father, help us to not just understand the words, but to be captured and transformed in the power of what you are doing because of who we are in Christ. And with an eye to the future, Father, never let us take our eyes off the heavenly and those things above where Christ is seated. But with that eternal, that eschatological hope, resting peacefully and firmly upon the rock of Christ. For it is him that we desire to please, it is him we desire to be like, and it is him that we desire now in this time together to magnify and to exalt. Come Holy Spirit, we pray. Do this work within us, we ask, in accordance with your will and in the name of Jesus Christ, the righteous. Amen. When we think of something or someone being being transformed, of, of being in a transformation process. We have a tendency in our Western society, in our microwave, high-tech, telecom world, hit a few buttons, do this, do that, voila, the change has occurred. We've made it. And this mindset, this expectation that we can be influenced by within the world around us and all that we hear can be very damaging. It can be dangerous in our renewal process that God is doing. I don't believe, from what we see in Scripture, we could withstand the full force of God's grace instantaneously. He gives us measures of faith, measures of grace to transform us, to enjoy him measure by measure, step by step. And for the believer, for the one who has by the prevenient grace of God, we are now a work in progress. We are being sanctified. We are undergoing an inward radical transformation of the heart, the mind, the soul. And in one very critical aspect, we've got to keep in mind in the forefront of us, just as we heard in Sunday school, this is a battle. It is warfare. But it is a well-supplied warfare on the behalf of the Christian. Even in our continual striving against sin, in the transformation of our heart and our mind, God's grace is always sufficient. It always abounds to those who are in submission to him, who seek his favor, his power, his continued work. It is not for the timid, for the weak-spirited, for the casual bystander, from some nominal conscientious objector 
if there is such a thing in the church. It's for the needy soul who, who humbly, who honestly looks to his mighty Lord, his king, his high commander, who has not only already won the war on our behalf, but is one who is faithful. Oh, so timely. Oh, so powerful in providing all that is needed in every aspect of our daily battle against our unseen enemies, our remaining sin, and our adversary, the devil. It is both extremely comforting. It is empowering to know that our king, who also knows our weakness, our hardships, our struggles, our temptations, to a degree far beyond what we have or ever will face or endure, And yet he is with us. He is close to us. He is ruling and reigning in our hearts for us. And he so delights in providing to us the mercy, the love, the grace, the truth, all the supernatural power necessary to conform us into his image, to be image bearers of him in this life and into the next. And what we've walked through so far in this glorious letter is is Paul's pastoral expression, his, his heartfelt instruction, his, both his warning and his exhortation to us of just who and how glorious Christ is, how wonderful our King and Savior is, our closeness to him for those who are truly hidden with him and God. And in this section of what we is labeled in our Bibles as chapter 3, Paul is bringing to light what should be our daily reminder of who we are and what we are in Christ, and now just what our battle is comprised of and where our enemy lies within our deceitful hearts, where our bodies in the flesh, where what still remains of the various sinful desires, the drives, the evil passions that are associated with our humanness. And as believers, we are in the midst of this inner battle of the spirit against the flesh, this new man against the sin working in and through our flesh. John MacArthur describes this. He says, quote, the flesh will continually dangle the garments of the old self in front of the new man and urge him to put them on. The battle against the flesh will go on throughout this life, close quote. Yes, we, as those who have partaken of this new life in Christ, are to be through this power, this grace of Christ that has been lavished on us, we are to be killing remaining sin. It is an ongoing daily battle with a glorious purpose. And we spent our time in the last message in verses 5 and the first part of verse 9 looking into what Paul has been telling the believers in Colossae and for us to be killing sin. But also, as we continue to realize, we are those hidden with Christ and God and never forget that primary aspect of our reality. And Paul, through the intentional guidance of the Holy Spirit here, began with what we call the labeled it private sins, those that are, that are not completely hidden from one another as they ultimately involve others, whether in thought or in actual deed. But Paul began with those outward manifestations of immorality, which in, encompasses all manner and forms of sexual immorality and purity. But then he, remember, he progressed further. He went deeper into the realms of our thoughts, the impurity, the uncleanness, and then even deeper into the realms of the heart using those three expressions, passion, evil desire, and greed or covetousness. And then he hits on the pinnacle in the heart, idolatry. That, that deep-rooted issue that we all have with that first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. And this is our basic problem. We worship all sorts of things. Our heart is an idol factory. And because of our state, because of our remaining sinful condition, we elevate so many things, even things which may be good in and of themselves. We grant them a position of of preeminence. We adore them. Our affections become inordinate. And what we worship begins to influence what? 
what we desire. And what we desire dictates what we think. And what we think sooner or later will become actions. We will follow through with them and what we do. This is the road. This is that disgusting road that Paul takes us down. A very vivid reminder of our sin nature. This road of, of sexuality, intentionally because there is such a proneness to it within our hearts. It is like a, a, a pinnacle, a, a heap of idolatry that, that eclipses all of this. And, and if you understand this, you have a basic understanding of what man's fundamental problem is, is that man is a worshiper and we worship the wrong things. Because of idolatry, it leads to a corruption of our desires, which leads to a corruption of our thoughts and impurity. And because of this corruption of our thoughts, it leads to a corruption of deeds. Sexual immorality, and Paul tells us, put it to death. Be active in putting it to death. And Paul then, staying in the realm of the heart, he addresses anger, wrath, malice. And then as a result of this, almost, almost a secondary category, but the result of this heart condition comes out in our speech. We, we slander one another. We're abusive to one another. And he goes on into the ninth verse, as we touched on last time, the lying or deceitfulness to one another. So in, in each of these lists that Paul gives us, they're not exhaustive by any means, but, but clearly they're identifiable things of what we do. And Paul's point is that these sins are a big and serious problem, but it is not the biggest problem. What do you mean, Pastor? The, bi- the biggest problem Paul is getting at here and wanting us to see is the root cause of the issue. What resides within? What is within our depraved, sinful hearts? How our hearts are naturally inclined to worship anything other than God. This is the root of idolatry, the root of pride and anger. Anything or anything else or anyone else but God. Martin Lloyd-Jones stated it this way, quote, Sins are nothing. They are but the symptoms of a disease called sin. And it is not the symptoms that principally matter. It is the disease that matters. For it is the disease that kills, not the symptoms. Close quote. Beloved, before you may begin to think, wait a minute. Aren't you getting into legalism here, Pastor? Killing sins, isn't that a legal work? No, we're not dealing with personal performance here which is what legalism is. This is not earning God's favor by personal performance or by what God thinks of me because of what I do or that I can arrive at peace with God by what I do. This is not Paul's thought here. This is not what he's saying. We, we, begin, we begin with the peace of God, of who we are in Christ. We start with both the fact and re- spiritual reality that we are accepted by God in the Lord Jesus And we begin in the reality of God's acceptance of us because of his perfect performance, of his righteousness. And what this salvific work based on Christ's righteousness and sacrifice does within us, what it should do, what it must do, what it will do in the believer is to stir within us a desire, a a seriousness and a zeal to deal with our sin and to be killing it. And neither is this mystical or to be confused with mysticism. It is not some special, unique, personal experience apart from the word of God being made alive in the heart by the spirit of God. It is not some additional experience that somehow we are zapped with some new level of holiness and taking us to a a holy stratosphere And if only God would do something exceptional or extraordinary, then I can do something with my sin. No, Paul tells us we have all we need right now in Christ by faith. And we have all in Christ's finished work what we need. And his specific use of the verb tenses tell us here that this is a finished work and one that is to be an ongoing reality on our behalf. What we have need of for the power of godliness is all that is found in Lord Jesus Christ and our position in him. 
Why? Because he says the penalty for our sins has been paid for. Its power, its dominion has been broken all by Christ. He will make us holy, and we are called to obey out of hearts of love for him. Finally, and be careful, this is not asceticism either, that that somehow through some radical deprivation in our bodies that we can trigger this or enable this holiness. No, the problem, as Paul has shown us, is in the heart, each of our hearts. It is idolatry. It is that willful disobedience from within to that command of God that we are not to have any other gods before him. It is not a matter of our own physical deprivation, our own physical works that will kill sin from an external source. And this is what we are to mortify. Now get after it. Be killing it. Contrary to all the books and publications and blogs and all associated with that these days, under the guise of of Christian self-help and this victorious life, now, somehow we claim the vic- we do the victory. You want to know what the best book is on holiness and pursuing holiness? It's right in front of us. It's right in front of us. But how many times do we want to go off and read and seek these other methods when it's all right in here and his inscribed word that he writes upon our hearts of flesh, our new hearts of flesh, new hearts that he has given us? his truth to be written upon us that will change us. Paul also preaches, and it it may be overlooked if we're not careful to hear closely, that is because of these things, these sins that manifest themselves from the root cause of a sinful, idolatrous heart, that these things God shows no partiality. His wrath is being stored up and will come in full, uninhibited, unrestricted force and justice upon the sons of disobedience. We saw that back in verses 6 and 7. And we know this from from Paul's other sermons, his other letters, Romans 1.18 and Romans 2, 5 to 6. You can compare it, you can see it as, as the rain comes down out of the heavens and there's this huge lake And as this rain falls and it accumulates and that lake fills up and fills up and at the far southern end of that lake, there's this great dam. And for a time, it is restricting the buildup and the accumulation of that water. And this is like the wrath of God as Romans 1.18 talks about. We see the wrath of God being revealed from the heavens now in very controlled measures, but we see the calamity that comes forth. And one day... That lake will be full. That wrath will be accumulated. And there will be such an eye-opening measure from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in righteousness. And it will also be in that one day in the future when this accumulation of God's wrath has been stored up in its fullest measure because of the stubborn an unrepentant heart of the sinner, this dam will burst. This flood will come with unrestricted power and force. God's wrath will be revealed. It will be rendered to each person. And this is regardless. This is where the partiality, God's not partial to this, regardless of race, works, riches, nationality, personal morality, self-glory, any entertainment world status, It will be rendered until every drop is released in eternal righteous judgment. So I need to ask, if there are any here today, young and old alike, if you are outside of Christ, children, adults, do you know what it means to be hidden with Christ in God? Do you know of his love and the life that he promises to all who come to him by faith? Do you know him and his father who sent him? He alone can satisfy the deepest desires of our heart and give us a new heart to know him, to treasure him, to enjoy him. If not, what we're seeing right now in California is a microcosm of what's going to happen unless you repent and turn to him in faith. 
The day is coming. It, it has been appointed. And this is what God thinks of all this idolatry. Of all the various manifestations and the sins and the transgressions we commit, it will receive its full judgment and wrath if we are not found in Christ. And if we understand this, we are to continue reminding ourselves of this, of what price has been paid to expiate and propitiate God's wrath on us. If we really think about this, we have every incentive we need, don't we? And if we're honest with ourselves, we really don't kill the things we love. True? If we still love our sin, we're not going to kill it. We're going to hide it. We're going to pocket it for convenience sake. We're going to coddle it. We're going to condone it. We're going to even excuse it. We will only kill something if we hate it. And this is the reason many of us don't get serious with our sin. We don't hate it enough. We will only put to death what we hate. We, can, we will and can only hate it as we begin to see, to truly see and consider how God himself sees it, how odious sin is in his presence, for him to look upon it, for him to send his only son to have to deal with it. And Paul wants us to grasp just how wicked, how odious sin is in God's sight. And a supreme to this is the means by which he alone has provided for believers and for sinners to come to Christ, but for believers to put it to death. And this is the first aspect of what Paul is telling us in this chapter and in today's text in verses 9 and 10 and 11. These three verses are, are like a bridge or a link, if you will, between 5 to 8, and then what we'll get into next time, Lord willing, in 12 all the way to 17, about what we are to put on. But today it's going to be focused on putting off. And Paul begins to, in these verses, begin to give, give us a greater light, a greater consideration and awareness of what has already been there, the, this, this plurality and also this cosmic aspect of this sanctifying work. I'll go into that in a little bit more detail later, but how it is not just individualistic. We are saved individually, amen, but how it is necessary and thrives in the body of Christ, in the local assemblies, in the local gatherings of the church, and globally in what is called correctly the Catholic Church. But he began most emphatically and correctly with Christ, with God, the finished work that we are individually as believers included in. But he now begins to enlarge his scope and and enlarge his focus as it relates to and includes and requires the sanctifying work that occurs within the body of Christ, the local assembly. So I want to look at, consider these verses as they apply to us individually, but just as important how they apply and impact us as we here at Heritage Grace are being fitted together, as we are being joined together as members of the body of Jesus Christ. So I want to look at these under, under three points. First, verses 9 and 10, first part of 10, is our condition. Our condition. Second is, is our continuation. This is second part of verse 10, our continuation. And then, our connection in verse 11. So first, our condition. Verses, the second part of verse 9 into 10a. Since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self. Paul uses a different analogy or language here in describing our spiritual condition. He, He begins by contrasting our old self and its practices with our new self much like how we can identify those in our society and, and their, their power or their importance or their authority by what they put on, what they wear. Because we can easily identify a policeman or a fireman or a doctor or a nurse in their white coats, their, their uniforms, a judge in their robe. And Paul is going deeper here for the believer. Slightly different perspective, but he's going deeper, drawing out from, from back in Colossians 2, 11, where he says, and in him 
you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Talking about what's been taken off from us in the circumcision of Christ. And I think Paul's also drawing a little bit from Old Testament accounts in Isaiah 51 and and 52 and even, even Zechariah 3, talking about removing filthy garments being clothed in festal robes, beautiful clothing, clothing of strength. But even more directly tied to this analogy is from his letter to the Romans in chapter 6 in, in speaking about the old self, this, this old humanity that is done away with. Turn over with me to Romans chapter 6 real quick. Romans chapter 6, I want to look at three verses there. Romans 6, verses 4 to 6. Paul says, therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death. Very familiar to Colossians, isn't it? So that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly, certainly we shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. And here in verse 6, Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. So true believers are those who are in a continuous mode, a continuous life, a continuous reality of putting off that old self which is vile that which must die, that which has been a day, done away with through our union with Christ and our particip- participation in Christ and his crucifixion. And we need to know this. We are to be to not only perceive this, but to be settled in our hearts, in our souls, that this is our condition. Our body of sin, our old man is done away with, and we are no longer slaves to it. Praise God. Paul is not speaking of some ontological nature here, but he's speaking of a condition, or better, a a positional orientation. It's a complete change in relationship for the believer. Our, Our old self is not just covered up. It's not improved upon. It's not made better or something's been added to it. The old unregenerate self, our former manner of existence in Adam, it's replaced. We, we are not half regenerate, half unregenerate. And we see this also in Romans 5, where, where Paul powerfully contrasts and shows us there are only two types of men. We are either in Adam or we are in Christ. Those who have been made new, the new creature, where, where we have been regenerated. And through Adam came sin and death, and because of his disobedience, we are all made sinner and under God's wrath. But through Christ alone, we are now made righteous, made to be in right standing before God, where we receive his grace, mercy, and love. So we cannot, by implication, be both in Adam and in Christ. But let me ask you a question. You may be thinking of this right right now yourself. This is a question that a, a 17th century pastor and theologian asked a group of 15-year-old young men who were entering Oxford. And John Owen says, quote, Suppose a man to be a true believer and yet finds in himself a powerful indwelling sin, leading him captive to the law of it, consuming his heart with trouble perplexing his thoughts, weakening his soul as to duties of communion with God, disquieting him as to peace, and perhaps defiling his conscience and exposing him to hardening through this deceitfulness of sin. What shall he do? What shall he take and insist on for the mortification of the sin, lust, distemper, or corruption? Close quote. This man and all true believers in this room must rightly consider their condition in Christ, where and in whom we are positioned, 
and that you are a new creature. creature. If you are in Christ, you are a new creation. Truly, the old things, the old man, the old self has passed away. And in the light of our condition and position in Christ, we must and we have the privilege of taking to him in confession and supplication and repentance over our sin. He alone provides the cleansing blood and the forgiveness that we need. And just as with our daily clothing needs, so must our spiritual putting off and putting on the new be exercised. This is that synergistic, sanctifying work that we are called to. And we must also realize that we are ever in a condition of renewal. We are in a maturing process. We are in a growing process up into into Christ. And this is where Paul continues in verse 10, where we see a continuation. We are being renewed. And who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him? This is an amazing verse, and I could spend a couple hours just on this, but just to understand our, our continuation, what it is our being renewed, let's first look at and understand what Paul is saying by the image of the one who created him, the Imago Dei. And what we understand from Scripture is, is the aim of our, our previous process, of our previous renewal process in passages like, like Romans 12, 2, of being transformed or renewed in our mind, Ephesians 4.22, that we are to be being renewed in the spirit of our mind. The aim is for the saint to be in the likeness of the very one who created this new man in the hearts and the lives of his children. To to better understand the image of God, we need to look at it in in two two subtle distinctions. In, In one, we see the nature of God. And and in the other, we see the moral image of God. And and the natural image of God, from what we see all the way back into Genesis 1, is a progression, an an orderly progression in the natural realm of what was created from, you know, ex nihilo, out of nothing, God created the heavens and the earth. And in more detail, light and darkness, and then waters and land, and then vegetation and fruit trees, bearing after their own kind. Then the sun, the moon, the stars, and then we see his progression into the living creatures, the birds, the sea monsters, the the cattle and the beast, after their own kind, alive like the plants, but carrying with them senses and faculties and, and even emotions like fear. How many dogs do you know when thunderstorms come, they hightail at front of the bed? So there, there is an emotional aspect in, in this created order. And then in, in the progression to the climax of creation, there's man and woman, Adam and Eve, created in his image. For, for God breathed and, and Adam became a living soul, having, having a differentiation. He was different from the other created beings he, he now being a reflection of God, being in his likeness. And we see something about God in man. We, we learn something and we enter into the realm of man's reasoning. His, his reason governed his affections, his, his love, his desires, his delight, and his will. And, and in this time, responding in worship to God and for God and of God. And here we have that, that natural image of God. And at this time in the Garden of Eden, Eden there's, there's innocence and there's communion. But we also understand a moral image of God. Spoken here in Colossians, but also a little bit extended further in Ephesians 4.24, Paul here says, And put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. And so the moral image of God can be understood here in, in these three attributes, that this righteousness, this holiness, and truth or, or knowledge. Adam and Eve were created in the image of God, that natural image consisting of natural reason and faculties, affections, a will, and their reason, their, their affections, their faculties, 
and their will were initially governed by this moral image of God, this knowledge and holiness and righteousness. And both of these together culminated in this image of God and man who reflected his creator. But we know what happened. They sinned. They disobeyed. They rebelled against God's command. And what resulted this image is that their image of God and themselves was corrupted. Man has lost the moral image of God. He has lost the knowledge of God. He has lost the righteousness before God. He has lost his holiness. And his natural image has been corrupted. And now his mind being darkened, shrouded in darkness of his understanding because of the ignorance in him due to the hardness of his heart, due to sin. So this moral image of man is gone. And the natural image that we have is corrupted. This is a state of every human being, every created man and woman subsequent to Adam and Eve. And for every unbeliever here and throughout this world, it's a terminal spiritual condition summed up in one word, dead. We are all spiritual corpses apart from Christ. And it is so very foolish, it is even dangerous for someone to say they will decide, they will determine when they're going to believe in Jesus or they're going to to try out Jesus for a while. Because how can an unresponsive corpse respond with no knowledge, no holiness, no righteousness, and with a mind that is dark and a heart that is hardened and a will that is enslaved to sin? It is impossible. And as many of us know, what is needed is a profound, seismic, supernatural, right arm of God miracle done on the heart of an unregenerate person. And it is on this level of creation or recreation, and we need the creator to create a new life and a resurrection that unites us by the Spirit to Christ in his death and burial and resurrection. This is what Paul is getting at here. And here in this particular verse, he emphasizes a renewal in knowledge because our knowledge was lost. And with the starting point of regeneration, he says, you have put off your old self. All you were in Adam and your previous inherited corruptions of being enslaved and our idolatry are now put off through this finished work of Christ. Now you have put on the new self, who you are as a new creature in Christ. And in this, we will continue our journey of a spiritual renewal. And we'll get into these verses and this aspect of putting on this new self next week, Lord willing. But please hear this. Paul's point here. Why should we obey this command? Why should we put sin to death? It's like a simple, almost rhetorical question. But we need to understand who we are in the Lord Jesus Christ. Understand that as one of his his chosen ones, now one of his precious adopted children, we are now being renewed into the very image, back into that image of God. Devoting ourselves from the heart to resemble God as much as we can. Do we take the kingdom of God by force with violence? In the pursuit of holiness and in the pursuit of righteousness. And what is the practical application of this command that Paul is giving us in putting to death remaining sin? How, how do we do this? Honestly, and if we're honest with each other before the Lord, first place we need to start, we need to quit making excuses. I need to quit making excuses. We need to realize, listen, that this is a command from the Lord to his children. But listen, God does not command anything we, his people, we cannot do. Now, we'll qualify this. Not in our own strength, but because he has given us everything we need by virtue of our union with Christ. And this is the working out of our salvation with fear and trembling that we see in Philippians. Because God started the work, and it is his good pleasure to will and to work 
for us to continue this renewal process. We are able, we are enabled to work out, to live out what God has already worked in us. And so we need to stop the excuses and continue in what Paul describes, this putting off and putting on. Just like clothes, we change clothes maybe several times a day, I don't know. But it's just like putting off clothes each day and putting on clothes. We are to put off what we were in Adam and put on what we already are in Christ. Each and every day, put off the robes of filthiness and what we were in Adam and put on the festal robes of what we, who we are in Christ. Let me, let me give us just some points here in light of all the passages we've gone through so far in Colossians. Just some specifics of this letter. First, meditate upon God and, and, and his incomparable greatness. Remember what it means to be in Christ, past, present, and future. Kill sin. Put it off. Starve it. And kill it by cultivating a deep hatred for it. Look how God deals with sin in the scriptures. This is how we put it off. We hate it because it robs us of our greatest treasure, which is our true, truly our enjoyment of God. What we're reading on Piper's book, our delight, our joy, sin corrupts that. Put it off by reflecting back on verse 6 on the punishment that our sin deserves. How, how can we play fast and loose, carefree with sin, when we know it to be the object of God's eternal wrath? And identify, realize, confess your proneness to sin. If we're honest, we each have certain idols in our heart. We're prone to that we almost effortlessly gravitate toward. Identify them. Get serious with them. Guard ourselves from all occasions that lead to temptations. What is it that feeds, that excites, that idolatry that draws us away? Starve it. Cut it off. Get rid of it. In whatever measure it takes. We must refuse to concede any ground to sin, to give it any entry point or any room for it to break out. We need to cut it off at its origin. And finally, we, we come to Paul's third and final point, where in this risen life and in this renewing work, it carries over with very great, serious, but also glorifying implications to the church. We could call this the cosmic realities of Christ, to be in at work in the body of Christ. Paul says a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free man, but Christ is all and in all. And just as we individually are to put off the old sinful habits, the old man, the old Adam, so also does the church. As as the body of believers hidden in Christ and now united into his body, into his church, his beautiful bride, we're now to put off the old barriers that separate people. This is a glorious reminder to look back at chapter 2, 19. Verse 19, how we are to hold fast to the head, which is Christ, from whom we get all our supply of grace, of knowledge, of truth, of righteousness, and that we are also, as a body, held together by the joints and ligaments, and we are to grow, which is a growth that is from God. Paul's bald statement here of declaring this renewal encompasses all of humanity. He starts out with, there's no distinction between Greek and Jew. That Christ as redeemer of humanity is no respecter of race, class, culture, gender, or any other qualifier that might cause us to segregate our fellow members of the human race. And, And Paul chooses and repeats this theme in so many areas of society from the overarching, all encompassing aspect down to the very most perverse, destructive societies known to man. If you want to read a a gruesome history, go back and look at the Scythians and barbarians and what they used to do to people. 
of drinking blood out of skulls and, and fundamentally cannibalism. Think of it, they were renewed and brought into our body. And Paul does this because we have such a tendency of prejudice and, segreg- and segregation because it's, it's so ingrained in our fallen human psyche. It's an aspect, another aspect of our idolatry and anger in our heart and pride. So the church and its members are not to be classified according to the world's or mere outward standards. And this is the beauty of membership in the body of Christ, is it not? When each of us is being renewed and growing up in Christ, putting off the old, putting on the new, and we are enabled by God to be fit together, to be, to be brought together. When one member, whether a toe or an elbow or whatever physical attribute correlates to that, whatever function a member may have in Christ's body, when one of us is struggling when we are beset with sin, when we are suffering in whatever form, the other members are there to support, to love, to encourage, to bring back, to rescue, to strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble. But if a member becomes indifferent, full of excuses, not interested in delighting in Christ, rather following, letting those idols of the heart have precedence, Whatever selfish reason, it has a weakening impact on the growth of the body. It causes the body to suffer. This is what Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 12. It says, you know, if a member should say, I have no need of you, saying, I know better. I know better than you. It, it, It causes pain to the body. And it can, unchecked, bring discouragement to the body and shame to Christ, his name, and his church in the world. The, the unity and love demonstrated in the church of all those, whatever background, whatever race, creed, color, nationality, language, whatever status level, all those who have brought, been brought together by Christ, who now live and experience among themselves in these local assemblies of Christ's glory, have all manner of divisions leveled now. All manner, social all those, even though we may still have good and necessary functional differences, amen, we need that. That's in Scripture. But this love within the church is to be a beacon. It is to be a glorious reflection of who Christ is, of his image, of his gospel, of what sacrificial love truly is. And there is no place for man-made barriers of any kind in Christ's church. Paul's conclusion in this verse sums up the entire matter. But Christ is all and in all. And Paul's words, I pray, will deeply impress upon us that there is a great cosmic dimension to Christ's saving work that goes beyond the glorious, yet beyond the mere salvation of people. The scope of his saving work is to reach into every nook and cranny of our diverse race, bringing people in from every conceivable background into the fellowship of his family, to the fellowship of his kingdom. And in this sense, Christ is not only able and the only key to dealing with sin in our lives personally, but he alone is also the key to enable us to deal with the sin that divides our shared life corporately within his church. So Paul's call, his command to the Colossians and to us as believers, deal radically with your sin and put it to death. And and it it's sad that in the church today, this kind of language sounds drastic to our ears, our, our snowflake 21st century ears. But it is nothing, it is nothing in comparison to the drastic measures that were required on Jesus Christ's part to deal with once and for all taking our sins upon himself and suffering that full penalty that comprehensible wrath of his own father 
to bear that darkness, all of that shame, all of the judgment in an eternal measure for my sins, for your sins, and to bring us together, to unite us in him. Beloved, this puts our responsibility as Christians in full, clear, true perspective. Amen. Holy Father, Lord, we we confess before you, God, our sin, our remaining sin. We confess, Lord, and ask your forgiveness for our negligence and our killing, our remaining sin. But Father, I pray and humbly ask that the, the, the working, the power of your spirit, that the permeating truth of your word would be so deeply inscribed on our hearts to, to understand more and more who you are and your holiness and the call that we have received to come before your throne of grace to live and move and have our being in you through Christ and all that he has done, that we would now take upon the understanding of your hatred for sin in our lives, and Lord, that we would become serious with it. Lord, for we desire, Lord, may we desire even more to walk in holiness, to walk in the righteousness of Christ, to have the knowledge of your truth permeate us, that we will be truly transformed more and more each day as we put off the old man and put on the newness of our life, of our hope, of the reality of Christ. Father, cleanse our hearts, we pray. Fill us, Lord, with your Holy Spirit. Renew, Father, renew a steadfast spirit within us to know you, to delight in you, to cherish you, to treasure you so that all the allurements, the things of this world, the deceptions of remaining sin will fall lifeless to the ground, Father. That we would be willing to give everything to have you. Oh, Lord, make this a daily reminder and reality in our lives, we pray. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.